שידור ישיר ממחנה רמה בברקשרס. כל רמה, מאה ושתיים שלוש complaining. There's no, but there's a lot of stuff going on here. Starting with Pinchas. We recall at the end of last week's Parsha, Pinchas, he, he did an act of zeal. Jeremy, what did he do? Zeal. Is zeal good or zeal bad? Well, it's kind of hard to say here in, the, in, the, in this Parsha. So zeal gmor. Let's go learn and figure it out. Mm-hmm. Pinchas, you know, at the end of the Parsha, uh, the 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 uh, Midianite people had sought to entrap the end of previous parsha had sought to entrap the Israelites in an idolatrous and sexual uh, kind of orgiastic moment, and at least one of the Israelite leaders, Zimri ben Salu, succumbed and was with a Midianite princess named Kozbi Batsur. Don't they, say no, no, no! It can't be! It can't be! It's the the Torah says it. Okay. <laughs> Uh, and, and That's he, how he knows it can't be. <laughs> the stuff that you're liable to read in the Bible actually might be so. So the, uh, the, the they are in, in flagrante delecto flouting the the norms of the people, and Pinchas, in a rage, um, takes the spear, and given the posture of Zimri and Kozbi, was able to get both of them with a single spear blow through their midsections. And, uh, and that is seen, that act of violent zealotry, that, that act of, of uh, murder or violent zealotry, or depending on how you want to describe it, is seen as, as restraining the anger of God. And this is the beginning of our Parsha now, that God says, Pinchas ben Alzar ben Aaron Kohen restrained my anger and I didn't destroy the people in my anger, and that is a, a line that uh, we repeat to this day at a Brit Milah, at the beginning of a Brit Milah. Barry, your take on, on Pinchas in that sense, is he... Uh, called trigger to evaluate, I think. Um, I think most of us don't like zealous types, unless it happens to be include us at the moment and zeal has to be controlled in some way but while Jeremy was describing the story I was thinking that God's holiness has to be preserved that human beings can violate that 
free, free will. If Pinchas would not have acted, then perhaps God's response would have been worse than Pinchas's. Um, I'm always struck by what appears to be this reward that's given to Pinchas, the Brit Shalom. As we were discussing earlier, I thought Jeremy had a beautiful insight that the Brit Shalom is going to become the program for Pinchas. It's not so much a reward, but that his act, field of action now is going to be only in terms of peace. Yeah. He's not going to be killing any more people. He's only going to be killing animals yeah. in the service of God. There's a, there's a small orthographical feature in the Torah that is, is very vivid. It, the vav in the middle of uh, British shalom, the vav in the middle of the word shalom, by tradition, when we have the Sefer Torah, there's a small, it's like a, 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 a cut in the middle of that vav. It's, it's kind of sliced in half. Um, and it, it connotes that spear of Pinchas, maybe a broken spear. And it connotes the, I would say, the, the damaged character of peace. The temple is supposed to be about peace. It's supposed to be about making peace between earth and heaven. Um, the temple, for example, is supposed to be a place where there's no hammer sound and there's no metal, which is an instrument of, of, of violence used to create the to create the altar. And Pinchas is not that guy. He's a guy who, and we have plenty more to say about um, rabbinic traditions approach to Pinchas, but he certainly, for you know, for for worse in obvious ways and perhaps better in some ways, is a person of violence who responds to a terrible situation with violence. And so to incorporate him into the Beit Hamikdash and the Kehuna, the priesthood, is a is almost like a, as Barry is saying, as we were saying, a kind of um, therapeutic program to to soften the edge of the zealot. So I, I have a couple of reactions. One is that that I always like to to refer back to Richard Elliot Friedman's commentary in these uh, in these very difficult uh, cases because he draws a, a a very very strong distinction between uh, violations of the ritual realm and violations of the ethical realm. And it's clear that this is a violation of the ritual realm in which there is no need for for trial. The ritual realm is a realm of life and death. And here Pinchas, and, and I'm here, I'm taking a point of defense, although the act of zeal is problematic, Pinchas takes matters into his own hands because he is seeing the violation right in front of him. It's the violation of, of several laws and it's imperiling the survival of the community and therefore he has to end it. And because he ends it, the plague that is happening there because of this act of idolatry ceases. However, there is the, the Bible's, the Torah's note of the act of zeal does mean that is problematic. And Shalom, and true, yes, nicely put, the, the broken vav there, is something very, very, you know, conflicted about, about Pinchas. Pinchas is this individual who's entrusted with the service of God and, and is defiled by having shed human blood. And um, there's no way to reconcile that. There's I, I, no way to reconcile that. And, uh, and perhaps the Brit Shalom is... It's God's way of, of saying, I understand this irreconcilable conflict in your life. You'll have some modal, modality of peace in your life because you're now confined in the precincts where you have to serve and don't, you are never going to be next to another person where you can, you can execute that kind of judgment. So I'm reminded of an exchange of letters between Mahatma Gandhi and Martin Buber in the 30s where Gandhi was advocating that the Jews of Eastern Europe should practice civil disobedience. 
peaceful protest to the Holocaust. And Buber's response was that sometimes the tragedy of being human is that sometimes war must be fought. That sometimes the human condition is such that violence is the only answer. And perhaps the story of Petrus is one of the biblical ways of fashioning that type of creed. I think, first of all, that that, uh, that Buber letter is a tremendous, a tremendous letter, um, and and I, I think ex- expresses why Judaism, certainly the experience of Jews in the 20th and 21st century, you know, I, I think you can't be a pacifist in the formal sense of the term, in the Gandhian sense, because ex- exactly as Buber is right, Buber wrote right to him, you know, I know the British are hard on you in India. The British are not the Nazis, okay, and that's and that's obviously obviously correct. Um, so the, with with Pinchas, uh, of course, around religion and ritual violations, um, the kind of zealotry that says, you know, I really object to what you're doing. You're you're violating our our our, our national code. You know, we have to kill you. Is, has produced lots of lots of, uh, of wreckage through human history. What I think is great about the, the rabbinic tradition, um, and, and our listeners here all know that, that we are rabbinic Jews, but the Bible represents a certain, you know, different time and place, and rabbinic Judaism represents a religion that's all about study and discourse and ritual. And the rabbis, I think, in general, are a rational, moderate sort of folk. They want to discuss things, and th- though there's a Mishnah that says, "Boel Aramit Kenaim Pogimbo," somebody who does what Zimri Ben Salu is doing, then then the um, then the what do you call it? Then the then the zealous should stand up and do what Pinchas did, or are are empowered to do so. But but the rabbinic tradition, I mean, that's a Mishnah. It, it is in in rabbinic tradition, but in the main, rabbinic tradition asserts that you shouldn't tell people to do that. Right? If somebody asks you, should I be a zealot? You should tell them no. And and the, the Jerusalem Talmud goes on to say something like really amazing. Pinchas shelo beretzon chachamim. Pinchas, Pinchas acted uh, despite what the sages directed him to do, which is which is an amazing comment by, by readers of the Bible text, which because you read the Bible text, Pinchas is is praised if, if in a subtle way. And they, and they say, this is, this is not our way. And I would say that over the history of the Jewish people, um, not perfectly, and there have been moments of violence and and um, extrajudicial vigilantism. But in the main, I think our religion has done an admirable job of restraining those impulses and directing them into society where one person doesn't get to decide, you know, for him or herself, this is what must be because I know because God says. Instead, it's about um, our discourse and our shared meaning making, which I think is a much better uh, so, well, true, but it comes. It doesn't come out of a vacuum. The rabbis, I think, I think, and we could we could go into the history here. The rabbis had their experience with with zealotry. The rabbis had experience with with uh, you know uprising with Bar Kokhva and and to catastrophic end. And and so what you have here, what Hartman David Hartman calls sobriety, quoting you know Salvechik, there was the, the the remarkable sobriety, which is we're just going to take we're going to take things. Uh, just a little less, uh, with a little less zeal. Zealotry as it needs to be contained. And we have one last point on this, which is, you know, the, the, the tradition equates Pinchas with Eliyahu, both of whom are quintessential zealots. And where are they? They're, they're 
They're in both. They're they're in tradition. They're in confined spaces. Pinchas ends up in the temple, and Eliyahu ends up as a protector, where he can harm nobody, where he protects people, and Pinchas ends up in folklore, where he's always like the 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 the, the figure that accompanies Israel, the forlorn, abandoned, exiled people, the harbinger certainly of their redemption, but a. a a kind of overseer and protector and doer of miracles. And, and that... And, on this point, um, we do have, have some, some of those things in history. And note how the, the rabbis, in addition to the ways that you're saying, you know, Eliyahu, like, let me take you to heaven so you don't kill 400 prophets of Baal anymore, please. Or, or um, the Maccabees loved Pinchas. They thought Pinchas was the man because that's the story at the beginning of, I mean, in one of those book of Maccabees, I forget which one, that that Matisseau sees the sees the guy eating pork and kills him, yeah. you know. And and this is not the rabbi's way. Um, and I, I just I think it's interesting to note, Elliot, you were saying this. Uh, say the, say your point about the the youth and the old age and relate to to Moshe and, and his story. So so again, you know, and and again, we both made this parallel. The parallel between Moshe Moshe commits an act of zealotry as a as a young man. He kills the Egyptian. Admittedly, it's it's a different kind of act, an act of manslaughter. Uh, resulting in Moses' exile. Moses, you know, spends 40 years uh, or, or, you know, a significant amount of time in exile until there are no longer anyone uh, able to avenge the death of that Egyptian taskmaster, returns uh, to, to Egypt. Um, Pinchas, he commits an act of, and, and there's an internal exile here. The exile is that he has to stay within the confines of the, you know, there's, there's a double entendre to that. You know, in, in Psalm 23, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Yeah, because you can't really be outside. You, mm-hmm. you need your refuge. You need to be there. You can't deal with people. And, and um, where do we take the people that can't deal with people? Well, you know, I don't want to say they go into the rabbinate, but what I want to say... <laughs> they become congregants. I'm of them too. What I want to say is, there's a reason why the priesthood is the priesthood and the priesthood sequesters individuals in antiquity. And, and it's not lost on us. Let's, let's move on. I want to, you know, there's a lot in the Parsha. The Parsha deals with, with another census. It's an, it's, it almost, it, 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 it laced into the census are, are little footnotes about the Tan Baviram and this and that, Ergo Anan and Serach Barasher, the Serach Barasher, this legendary figure, the only woman mentioned in the genealogy, Sarah Barasha, she must have been about 300, 400 years old. But uh, according to the Midrash, she literally knew where all the bones were buried. Yep. According to the Midrash, Moses uh, asks where the bones of Joseph are buried, and they turn to Sarah Barasha because she's like 300 years old. And she said, yes, the bones of Joseph are buried over there. They take it, etc. I, okay. I have another one about Sarah Barasha. By the way, she's she, according to one Midrash, she is the one who informs Jacob that Joseph is still alive in Egypt. She sings yeah. him a song yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Says, um, and says that, that he, because she's, she's like this oracle who lives for a thousand years and she knows everything and uh, is a very illustrious mythic figure. Okay. We have another important story in this uh, Parsha. There are two more that we need to talk about. The first one is Benot Slavchat. Here, these daughters of Tzalafchad in the tribe of Menashe, their father Tzalafchad dies, leaving no male heirs. 
What then happens? Barry, you want to take it? So they come to Moshe and wanting to know why they can't inherit their father's land, which is going to be a portion to him when they cross over to the Jordan, in order that his name be maintained in, in the tribe. And um, Moshe, of course, doesn't have an answer. He consults God, and God says that uh, the Benot Slochad are indeed correct. That when the, yes, so when there are no male heirs to a, a father, that his daughters will inherit. Is and this then, um, proto-feminism? Is this just the evolution of law? How would you put? How would you frame this? So I think that what strikes me about this is it has to do with the importance of the land and inheritance and how our names survive. And their concern is that if someone else takes the land, a relative of Slovchad, uh, more distant than they, then Slovchad's name will disappear. And, you know, the part of the, the Parsha is going to deal with the apportionment and where we are, literally, this place that we inhabit is an important construct for our lives, both personally and nationally. Yeah. And people do not want to be disenfranchised. They don't want to be uprooted. And if the Benot Slochad cannot inherit Slochad's land, then in effect, their father has been uprooted from the people. Uprooted is a great is a great word for this because you know there's just no overstating how important uh, a rootedness in the land is to uh, am yisrael's sense especially in these you know the bible is very concerned about exile and really concerned about homecoming so for slovchad for the for the slovchad family to risk having no uh rootedness in the land is is just a fate worse than death and so um this you know sort of a um, a genetic oddity, uh, uh, one in uh, what's the one in two fifty six to have five straight daughters, or one in uh, five twelve, or whatever it is, yeah. um, uh, like Tevia. Um, they're, they're, what? That's just not fair. So they say, okay, we're going we're to see to it that the Slovchad clan does, in fact, have a place to call their own. So, looking at it in, in the legal lens, the Bible offers a, a mechanism for correction, correction of, a, of an inherent flaw in the uh, laws of, of property and inheritance. But I love what you said in terms of the land, and I think perhaps you could see Benot Slavchad as a, as, a, as a key story in the transition of themes, because in the very next moment, God says to Moshe, Go see the land. And, and, you know, we're, we are moving to the end of the book of Bamidbar. Uh, we are getting to the end of this journey. We are literally, as a people, standing at the edge of the land. And, and a great theme of the book of Tvarim is the land. So being uh, preoccupied with um, matters that are con uh, concerning with the, the apportionment of the land is obviously a, a very, very important thing. I, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great moment uh, where God takes Moshe and has him see the land. And, of course, that, Mo that moment is echoed at the end of 
Dvarim, it's always a, a, quite an imaginative moment. But uh, speaking of imaginative moments and, um, and really uh, important moments, we have this moment of transition of leadership now. Moshe ordains Joshua. Uh, the text is, if God, Moshe is concerned about succession. He says, if God let God, all of this, you know, the Haruchot, uh, God of the entire spiritual realm, the, the, let, let God appoint someone to lead this community. Let this community not be like sheep without a shepherd. Katson asher ein lahem And so then what happens? God says, take your hand, put it on Joshua. What does Moshe do, Jeremy? Yeah. It says, it says, singular, place your hand on him. But what Moshe actually does, plural, two hands. And it's, a, it's taken in the, in the Midrash, and Rashi quotes this as a statement of Moses' immense generosity. We know that uh, people can sometimes be jealous, and uh, jealous of their successors, and jealous even of their students, and chas v'chalila, but some people are even jealous of their children, and... And Moshe is not like that, though. Moshe is very solicitous of his student Joshua, and and if God perhaps wanted to just take the edge off of Moses's own, uh, shall we say, mandatory retirement age of 120, uh, and and say, well, Joshua, will you'll give Joshua one hand, and and v'natata mehodecha alav, and and we'll we'll place a little of your glory on him. Moses gives him the full measure. He says, I want you to succeed and I want you to, I want you to be a, a, a great leader for these people and to place the double hands yeah. is that, that um, uh, great gesture of generosity. So it's worth thinking about this image of the shepherd. So one of the great images that we have describing the relationship between God and Israel is God is a shepherd and we are the sheep. And the patriarchs, as we know, we're all shepherds. And Moshe was a shepherd. That's how we first meet him. But Joshua is not a shepherd. And this is also part of the transition, that that shepherd part of the people's history is coming to an end when they're going to go into the land and they're going to become farmers. But what they need to take them into the land is not a shepherd on earth, but a warrior. And as far as I know, Joshua is never described as a shepherd. He's a Ned to camp. He's a military figure. And he represents the new generation, even though he was part of the Exodus, he's the new generation of Israelites that are going to be able to conquer the land. It's a, it's a generational transition as much as it is a leadership transition. And when you, when you think about political transitions uh, and, and, and you know, just compare the Davidic household and the, the monarchy, uh, and how much blood was spilled. The idea of the peaceful transition of power, uh, which is something that I think, you know, in, is certainly in the tradition in, in Western democracies. Look, here, here you have, the, you know, the roots of that, or possibly an example of that, where Moshe, who could have undermined his successor to a terrible degree, uh, really validates him. I think part of, the placing of both hands is, look, the, the, the Midrash is, one hand is what God tells me, but I'm going to do it of my own. I'm going to put the second hand up because, of, and that moment, standing in front of the people, 
is the validation of, of the successor. The people love Moses. They, they have a difficulty with, them, with him as well, but they only know one leader. And, and the precarious situation of the successor is that to the predecessor, the predecessor can undermine the successor, and the successor uh, can really uh, be, be lost without the validation of the, of the predecessor. It's a political moment here. So they're looking for a differently, a new leader, but not a different leader, which is why it's so important that Moses invests so much of himself in Joshua. Obviously, there has to be a change from one generation to the next, from Moshe to Joshua, but the people do not want Joshua to be all that different from Moshe, where that can be, where it can be possible for him to be like Moshe. Do you think Moshe really understands this? This is this is something that I'm, I often think Which about. Which Moshe? He's the Moshe in my imagination or in yours? No, I don't know. Well, you know, Moshe, is he, is he someone who is aware that, because you have Midrashim at the end of his life where he just wants to hold on. He's, you know, he's like sticking his fingernails into, he's clawing back death. He, he doesn't want to give up easily. He's profoundly human. I think Moshe, he makes it to the mountaintop, but doesn't make it to the promised land. Right. And right. so there are moments of great humanity where he is this giving figure, where he does everything that we want a great leader to do, even at personal cost. And then there are moments when he acts, you know, like the rest of us. So leaders are flawed then. I would say that it seems to me that that the Bible, I, I think, in its terseness and its major themes, um, tends to give us more about people's situations and roles and less about their personalities and experiences. And the Midrash tends to fill those things in. I think that Moshe is right now in this passage portrayed as um, just doing a masterful job of managing this generational transition. This, you know, this, the need for the leader from the desert is not the leader that is needed for the, for the conquest of the land. I want to point out two things about it. One, one is that, uh, that he, that Moshe involves Eleazar in the investiture of, of Joshua, which lets you know that just as Moshe and Aaron had complementary roles, we're, we're setting that forward. There's a kind of a religious and a political social uh, leaders, both, both of which going on. And the other thing I want to point out is that Moshe uses this phrase, which is common to um, Bamidbar, but rings in our ear from a couple of weeks ago, because Adonai Elohea Ruchot Techol Basar, yeah. Uh, Lord um, of, of all the flesh of uh, the spirit of all flesh, uh, we need a leader. And the commentary on this is that you know, because people are so different and people are uh, each person is, is individual, a leader has to recognize uh, the uniqueness of each people and that's each person, and that's going to be what, what a leader's job is. That's what I did. That's what Joshua's going to have to do. But it's also the exact same phrase that was used in the Karach episode. So, so you, you might be saying to Joshua, all right, this is not going to be easy. I just want to pick up on one of, one of the points you made, which is that, that you know, here most, there, there is a real transformation of Moshe as a leader. The, the, what you have in, uh, in the early stories of Bamidbar, rebellion, uh, anger, inability to function, uh, you know, split, section, split second decision making, uh, there, there are consequences to, to, to decisions that Moshe made. Here, it seems that we are now, we're now 
in a, in a different place. We're, we're kind of coasting here. And uh, we see the, the transformation of his leadership. And I think the, the excellence that, that has accumulated over the years of experience, that Moshe, as the seasoned leader, understands things now and understands human, his, he understands his people, he understands what they need. And by, by inaugurating Joshua, by, by instigating really the, the transition, He's really being what a leader needs to be, which is to take care of his people. We, we can't talk about Pinchas without talking about the, the great chunk of this Parsha, which is Korbanot, the end of this. But you said that this Parsha is the most read Parsha, you know, beginning with reading, but it has the, the daily sacrifice. Um, Two sacrifices, one in the morning, one two sheep, one in the morning, one in the evening, and then a whole menu, a good, a good set of, good allotment of animals. Um, what's it doing here? How important is this? What does it remind us of? And what does it make you think of? <laughs> Barbecue. Barbecue. You're the vegan, so hey. I'm the vegan, that's right. But, but um, I'll tell you, you know, it's... it's how central sacrificial worship was in the life of, of our ancestors. It can't, I can't, uh, you know, we can't, we can't uh, underscore that enough. You know, a, a sheep in the morning, a sheep in the evening, and Musaf on, uh, you know, an extra one on Rosh Chodesh, an extra couple on Shabbat, and then a whole system, uh, you know, of, of different kinds of animals, in common, you know, with, with, the greatest expression of the Sukkot. I mean, 70 animals, totally. I feel like because, um, for good reasons, we practitioners of liberal religion um, were anxious about the conflict over the Temple Mount, and and there was, as our our listeners probably know, uh, a plot to blow up the Golden Dome and replace it and build the Beit HaMikdash. Um, in the 1980s, which was which was broken up by the the Shin Bet, and uh, and I'm told that um, I think I read this in Michael Owen's book, but in in uh, after the victory in 1967, Shlomo Goren like met Moshe Dayan at the top of the Temple Mount and said, "Well, okay, we're going to just we're going to destroy the mosque and build the Beit Hamikdash now, right?" And Dayan said, "Okay, arrest that. <laughs> Got to be anxious about these things." Uh, but I also think that that we practitioners of liberal religion, whatever, we shouldn't lose sight of the of the poetic power of animal sacrifice, which we don't want to practice it, you know, before all. We don't want to do it for real. Gotcha. But I think that the offering. We can't. That much we got. But the, but the aspect of first of all offering something expensive. Religion not being about what you get, but what you give, and and also the 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 deep identification of the sim the symbolic the symbolic identification that the animals that you're offering really stand in for the self that you are offering. You are offering your own life, um, and and because God is merciful, this is this is what the Ramban says. Because God is merciful, I don't actually demand you give your life. I I, I demand you to give a substitute for your life. But don't forget. The symbol of what you're offering is yourself, and I find that tremendously poetic. Yeah. And and so I'm kind of against our conservative movement, and certainly the reform movement, like slap slash 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 all the sacrificial references out of the prayer book. I think that those references are valuable in prayer. 
Indeed, indeed. Barry. So what I, I would add two things. First of all, for us, what has come to replace sacrifice is prayer. And prayer is, is not as dramatic as an animal sacrifice. And most of us understand that, but we don't always appreciate it. Perhaps when we go to shul, we're expecting drama, which we only get in an animal sacrifice. We don't necessarily get in prayer. But what the two things have in common, and I think what we sometimes overlook with sacrifice, is this calendar of sacrifice in Pinchas is a profound way of ordering the daily life of the people. There's an, something's going to happen every day, twice a day, and on special occasions, more of it's going to happen. And it's a way of imposing an order on the calendar and on the year. And one of the things I think we sometimes take for granted in the 21st century is that we as human beings impose order on our lives and on the world that we live in. It's not found in the world. We, we put it there. And we need that in order for us to survive as individuals and as societies. Order is the key to continuity. I think that's a profound uh, idea, and it's a good place to, to pause of, at the end of this uh, Parsha, really to understand that we, we are in, in religious life, in the worship life, in sacrificial life that, uh, of antiquity, really trying to order the chaotic world. And, and nothing really identifies that more, defines it more than, than the moment that we're living in, which is completely chaotic on some levels, and which we are all trying for, for some, uh, some modicum of order, some stability, and some way of, of imposing a, a kind of even a ritual order on this. And that's why, you know, I think uh, the three of us coming together certainly represents that on some level. And uh, Shabbat represents that. It's, it's, it's enormous. I think that the opportunity to, to anchor and to order our lives through the weekly reading and the weekly study of Torah is, uh, is, is profound. It's profound uh, implications for our lives. And it's a, it's a great bracha always to, to be together, the three of us. Let's say Shabbat Shalom. We want to say Shabbat Shalom to all of our, our loyal listeners and viewers. We love getting your mail. We love getting your reactions. Send it to us and, and like of, us. We want, want to be loved. We want to be liked. We want to thank our West Coast listeners. Paula Rose, thank Paula you. Paula Rose. Thank you. And for our East Coast listener, Arnie Steinberg. Arnie Steinberg, and yes. a couple of others who will remain nameless. Eileen Herman from my other name. All right, Shabbat Shalom. Blessings. Shabbat Shalom.